iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to one of the biggest shocks in World Cup history as Saudi Arabia beat Argentina. The French turn on the style against Australia. A couple of goalless draws. Denmark against Tunisia. Mexico against Poland. We'll dissect all the big moments in those as well. And we will talk about Cristiano Ronaldo and Manchester United. This is the game World Cup 2022. Hello and welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson looking back on day three at the World Cup in Qatar where we had one of the shocks of the history of the tournament itself up there with Cameroon beating Argentina in 1990, Senegal beating the holders France in 2002, the United States humbling England back in 1950 and South Korea beating Italy also in 2002. Saudi Arabia, a full 48 places beneath Argentina in the world rankings, and it just didn't make a difference. They scored two great goals in six second-half minutes, which saw the Green Falcons get the biggest win in their history, just their third ever at a World Cup to beat Lionel Messi and co. In fact, it was such a great result that Saudi Arabia's King Salman has even announced a public holiday on Wednesday in the wake of the win. Argentina losing a World Cup match after losing at halftime for the first time since the final back in 1930. It was a huge result and a deserved victory for Saudi Arabia. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a smash and grab at all, was it? It was amazing. Gregor, what did you make of it? Bonkers. Bonkers game. Their, their high line was just like, I thought it was insanity for much of the game. And then actually, I just started to wonder whether they were some kind of evil geniuses actually all along because even the commentary, there were people that we were hearing this, you know, Argentina have got so much space to exploit. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And you kind of it just never did. And there was some, when anytime they did get in behind, they just produced like magnificent piece of defending a late like a last gasp tack, tackle or the goalkeeper came rushing off his line or but that was the story of the match the way they, they condensed the pitch into like a 30 yard space in the middle of the park and backed themselves it was so ballsy and brave you know we were so used to seeing the underdogs just camp you know park the bus sit deep and try and kind of i don't know get as far into the game as they can and maybe edge something on a set piece and this was the polar opposite of it a fair play to them it was like I still kind of felt that it would come crashing down towards the end, but it never did. And uh, it was a remarkable, remarkable result. Yeah, I felt the same. I think everyone did. They thought Argentina have to score here. They have to get themselves back into the game. They've got Lionel Messi. I mean, it's only going to take a second for him to conjure something magical. It never materialised for him. It never materialised for Argentina, Tom. Uh, a terrible day for them, but again, fantastic for Saudi Arabia. 
Yeah, they were really poor. I mean, I'm delighted to hear Gregor do a U-turn almost as good as the Conservative <laughs> I was government. wondering how long you would take that one. <laughs> I mean, come on, mate. I've got to go straight in. If after your assessment yesterday of Iran, England, and saying, oh, I'm a bit worried, you know, about this tournament. Maybe the smaller teams are going to struggle against the big sides. And bang, here comes Saudi Arabia to prove you wrong. And as you both already said, they were fully uh, fully good value for the for the win. I think what was strange was that it, it never really... I know you were saying that, you know, it's going to come, it's going to come. But actually, as the game went on, to me, it looked like Argentina looked less and less like scoring. And, you know, they had strange situations where it was the classic give it to Messi in that kind of final um, third of the pitch and hope that he produces a pass, a ball over the top. But, I mean, Al Oase as well in the Saudi Arabia goal in terms of sweeper keeper, he took it to a whole new level, didn't he? Far beyond anything Manuel Neuer and the like have achieved in the last few years. Um, he was great value to watch in terms of his scampering off the line and some of his histrionics as well. Yeah, it, it certainly wasn't. I think that was the most significant thing about this win in terms of all those matches that you talked about, Hugh, in the history of the World Cup, was it wasn't necessarily that backs-to-the-wall, dogged spirit, goals from set pieces, you know. As you said, Hugh, they produced two brilliant goals and I thought overall were pretty good value for the win against a team that a lot of people, you know, a lot of people on social media, a lot of other journalists that I'd read about had kind of predicted oh, this This could be Argentina's year, tough to beat, dogged, you know, some grizzlier players in midfield and this will be the chance for Messi to finally crown his career. And they looked well, well off it, didn't they? Yes, they did. Um, Listen, I I was, I think a lot of people had their jewels on the floor. I was one of them. Uh, Just watching, in particular, the second half in that game. Because when you look at the the first period, you just, it was inevitable, you thought. Lataro Martinez is eventually going to be onside. And eventually, you know, there were a couple of lovely finishes in there from him. uh, Goals being disallowed. And you just thought eventually one's going to count and, and Argentina will pull away and yeah, it will be the the victory that we all predicted. And in the end, I don't know what it was. I don't know if those uh, ruled out goals just gave Saudi Arabia that little bit of um, extra impetus to think we are in this game, you know, it might be our day. And yeah, um, they just delivered. Um, I think there were some question marks over Emi Martinez, the Aston Villa goalkeeper in the back of the net uh, for Argentina. Just because, and I, I don't blame him necessarily for the two goals. I think one spun straight into the corner. The other one, yes, he got a hand to it, but it looked like a really good finish. Maybe he should have sort of predicted the shot would have gone in that corner, maybe moved his feet across there a little bit earlier. But I personally don't have too much criticism on that for him. And it's a weird one. We'll talk about, you know, another big nation a little bit later on in France who won their game comfortably and managed to control the game. I just don't think there was that, aggression I think maybe there was a little bit of complacency when it came to Argentina in terms of getting those goals particularly when you know you felt like a second would would pretty much kill the game at 1-0 this is obviously and yeah they just didn't feel like they really went for for Saudi Arabia didn't really put them under pressure weren't as tenacious and aggressive as maybe you need to be as we've seen in some of the other games to get a result, highly, highly disappointing for them in what was, of course, what is meant to be Lionel Messi's fanfare at, at this level of football, if you like, with a lot of people desperate for him to lift the trophy. On today's evidence, that's not going to be happening. But, of course, we expect, and he has said after the game, that this Argentina team will bounce back. I, I mean, I, they need to, essentially, because they've got two pretty decent teams in the group to face. They will play Mexico on Saturday night, Argentina. 
That game is absolutely massive. I will be there out in Doha. And then they've got Poland, which could be a very, very tricky game as their final group game. And already, with such a bad result today, you have to feel like there's a chance Argentina and Messi will go home packing in the group stage. Yeah, and I think they should be concerned. What do you think, Gregor? Yeah, the thing, the, the main thing, I mean, it was an odd game. We have to, we have to kind of... We have to we have to admit that the first half it could have been you know they could have been out of sight. It was, there was small margins, particularly in one of Martinez's goals, ridiculously small margins. Um, but and that, but the biggest thing for me is that there was they had no guile in, in midfield. I thought uh, Rodrigo de Paul was was really really poor, and you know it said the sub said a lot as well. They brought off two of the back four like midway through the second half, quite early in the second half. There's obviously a lot of a lot of people the manager thought was was really underperforming. Um, but as I say, I just don't think they had enough guile. I think that you've got to give some credit. Again, I'll say it again. When you condense the pitch so much, it's pretty hard. There's not much space for the midfield to be, midfielders to be kind of pulling the strings. And a lot of the time, either Messi was dropping deep to play balls through, or it was defenders, or it was a first-time ball around the corner, or things like that. So, But still, Altam Bakhti, my go- my goodness, he was putting his body on the line. Some his last ditch tackle on Messi when Martinez was going through and he he cut it back. He just slightly underhit it. What a tackle that was! And you, everything you said about their physicality, Hugh, and their kind of it's really the opposite of what you you kind of come to expect from Argentina. You expect them to be dogs of war a lot of the time, and Saudi Arabia were everything that they weren't. They were put their bodies on the line. They had so much heart. So you've got to give them great credit. But from Argentina's point of view. It's, it's pretty worrying. Like I say, I just, there just didn't look to be much much craft. Really, we're relying on relying on Messi to kind of produce something, and and it didn't happen. That small margin you mentioned a few moments ago, I did want to discuss because even with the graphic there, you saw a slither right at the top of the arm of Lautaro Martinez, and then this little emitting red radar-like dot showing us that he must have been offside, or at least his shoulder was, to what, an inch? I mean, if it was that, even that much. And I, I immediately thought, oh, what happened to the the little margin of error? The fact that they were, you know, when it was the line, they were going to make them a little bit thicker. And I was like, surely that's onside. I mean, does anyone actually want that to be offside? Oh, that's how tight it was. I mean, I hate to revisit it, but I, we've got the extra technology. We've got the chips in the ball and all that stuff, but... I still thought, ah, oh, I mean, we want goals, don't we? Sorry, I just you wonder if that boy, boy Saudi Arabia, and Irv Renard to to play this way. The fact that there's this extra kind of additional bit of technology now, it just my mind went back to when VAR first came in and Liverpool suddenly changed the way they played and they played so high and it's because they knew they had the technology to lean the right way on these fine margins. So yeah, that might have influenced. The way you know they're they're thinking and the way they played because it was so brave it was remarkable. Yeah, I think Greg has got a good point there in terms of the tactics that Saudi Arabia used and having VAR in the back of their minds. I, I take your point, Hugh. You know, I'm one of these people that is a bit of a kind of purist in the sense that I don't like seeing those moments chalked off um, for for really tight calls. But I think when the tournament itself sets the standard with that very first offside, the Ecuador one that was ruled out when I think most of the players on the pitch and most pundits didn't even expect there to be an offside. And then all of a sudden there was one conjured from somewhere with the ball in midair. 
I think that sets the kind of standard for the tournament. And we're also seeing a standard with other VAR decisions in terms of grappling in the box, unless you're Harry Maguire, of course. Um, lots of other decisions seem to be going against defenders in that sense. And I think I could be wrong and over-interpreting this from FIFA point of view and from referees point of view, but I think in tournament football, we don't tend to see trends changing, do we? We seem, we tend to see like, oh, this is what the trend is going to be for um, decision-making. We had it at previous World Cups with handball, for example, um, and that came, became a big theme um, of previous tournaments. So I, I agree with you, Hugh. I wouldn't like to see these tight calls given so often, but I think we've kind of set our stall out in terms of what we've seen so far early on. One thing I did want to ask, and that's because um, I've had the privilege of being on the editing desk today, and Greg has mentioned him already in terms of Herve Reynard, of a bit of a journeyman character. Greg, you had a bit of a journeyman career in terms of on the pitch. Herve Reynard, a bit of a journeyman character in the dugout in terms of managerial... Males behind him. Well, you've not been across the globe as much as him, that's no. for sure. But whilst he's um, managed many countries across the across the world, he's also managed an English team, hasn't he, for a brief period. And you spoke to yeah. someone that worked with him at Cambridge United. Yeah. Um, I think he was, he was kind of maybe in his... About thirty-five, something like that. Um, so it was early in his in his career, and yeah, he had a very brief spell as manager at Cambridge United. I spoke to a guy, a player from that period uh, called Shane Tudor, uh, today, and a lot of the things he said kind of tied in with what we saw today. He said that his words, his first thing he said was he's the most passionate manager I've ever ever played for in my, in my whole career. He had this kind of intense stare. He was saying that he had like. An impeccable. <laughs> he was he was gushing about him. He's like he had an impeccable body, you know, a golden tan. And to be fair, he still looks a million dollars. And I had to agree with him. He does look a million dollars, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. So, but he said, but everything was about fitness. So he said it was like it was a shock to the system. He did things. That, this is in two thousand and four, like banning ketchup and fizzy drinks in a League Two club, you know, which was probably unheard of then. They trained several times a day. He was talking about like a you know, grueling pre-season that he had with them. But it didn't go well. He was sacked by December. And in fairness, this uh, Shane Tudor was saying that he thinks that he would put that down more to the fact that he didn't quite get... He wasn't working with good enough players and they didn't quite get the buy-in. But he said that it was all the same. It was about the, the focus was on closing down, pressing, intensity. All these things he said, he was almost like he was ahead of his time because now when you watch football and that's these are the kind of the buzzwords in modern football, he was asking a League Two team to do it in 2004. And they said, hmm, I'm not sure. So <laughs> it, it, it's, it was, that was kind of one stop on what has been a remarkable journey uh, through nine countries, I believe, in 23 years. Two African uh, Cup of Nations victories, uh, World Cup with Morocco in 2018. He's had some career and he's obviously still got the love for the game. Well, who knows where he could take Saudi Arabia in this World Cup, of course, because... They have a chance. They have a chance of reaching the knockout stages now, of course. I mean, a point may be enough, but if they can win one of the other games against Poland or Mexico, and on the evidence of today, you know, that could easily happen. They could see themselves not only go through, but top the group. Huge pressure on Argentina now. Um, yep, congratulations to Herve Renard and his team, because that is, I think, that is probably the biggest shock in the history of the World Cup. So much so that in my preview, I asked my guest... 
if Messi would score a hat-trick or not. That's basically the level that we started at, right? So I was totally wrong and I can only apologise to those fans of Saudi Arabia. Enjoy your public holiday, by the way. Let's talk about the other game in that group. Uh, It finished goalless between Mexico and Poland and there was a key moment in this game. Of course, there was the Poland captain, Robert Lewandowski. He still hasn't scored at a World Cup. Huge chance for Poland to take a big step towards qualification when he missed his penalty. It was saved, of course, by World Cup legend, now Mexico's 37-year-old veteran keeper, Guillermo Atroya. But Poland are the first team to fail to convert three straight World Cup penalties since records began back in 1930. And before we talk about the penalty itself, because the game wasn't great, let's be be perfectly honest, there was a lot of debate uh, online, at least, over whether it was whether it was a penalty. I thought it was a stone wall penalty. Stone Is that, wall. Do you guys dis- stone, stone wall. I thought it was a pen. Come on, it's, it's, a, it's a pen all day long. You've been sucking into you why. a new FIFA I'd, grappling no, protocol. No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. Do, do you know? Do you know why? I, do you know how I know that I made up my mind on this? I was standing on the street as I made my way back to my hotel, watching the game in silence through the window, looking into a bar. And so I was on my own and I had just myself to make up this this decision. I didn't have any influence from people around me screaming at the TV screens. No influence from the commentators, of course. And what I saw was above the waist, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other, two players pulling one another but the left leg of the defender reaching across Lewandowski, trying to get the ball, not getting the ball, taking away one of his legs, meant it was a penalty for me. I'm sorry, it was it was a definite pen. I mean, it wasn't even. I, I don't even think it was you know that big a deal. It was a it was a stonewaller, Gregor. I've got to say, just before Gregor comes in, it's nice to hear you so positive about a refereeing decision that I'm happy for you to have swayed me, to be honest. No, normally, you're so critical, Hugh, that I think I'm just delighted to see you on the side of the referees for once. That I'm ha- you've, you've persuaded me. I am. Complete stonewaller, Gregor. It's definitely not a stonewaller. Sorry, Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's one where I was looking at it from different angles and changed my mind, actually. And then ultimately, I came to the, to the view that it's one of those that can be given. But if I was a defender, I'd be pretty upset with it because he is so strong. And you're doing, it was like a wrestling match, but you were both trying to do everything you could to kind of within the boundaries of the laws, just about to get to the ball first or just to hold the other one off. And he's so strong. And he had had a bit of a grip of his shirt as well. So there was enough to see why it was given. But I'm not, if if I'm the defender, I'd be upset with it. I bet you would. Uh, Listen, that's (laughs) because that's how you defended, Gregor. Okay. (laughs) That's the only reason that you'd be upset. I mean, I expected you to say that. Of course you would. Because you would have taken him down as well. You don't want to see goals either. You're a defender. You're not a fan like me. You don't want to see beautiful goals being scored. (laughs) It's a penalty. He's lucky he stayed on the pitch, to be perfectly frank. But anyway, the fact is it was given. Right decision. And Lewandowski, my word, your national hero. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I I literally whispered it to myself. Smash it. Smash it. Power. Belief. That penalty from Gareth Bale, that was the lesson. Okay? you got to put something on it. And he barely put anything on it. I was so disappointed with the penalty. Comfortable save. I mean, I saw reports saying it was a, an unbelievable save. I mean, it was a straightforward save. And it was a poor penalty. And Robert Lewandowski will have nightmares about it, Tom. He, he will. It was a really poor penalty. And I must say... Got to give credit to uh, our colleague James Restall, who I was with in the Time Sport office when 
Lewandowski was stepping up. James said, bottom left to the keeper's left, Ochoa to save, nailed on. And I said, like you, Hugh, nah, top bins all day long. And James was right. It was, and this is my dad, uh, years of watching football with my dad and pessimisms and things like that, but it was a long wait for the penalty, wasn't it? That's the only thing, the only slight mitigating factor, the only defence I can give for Lewandowski's missing. It was a long old wait, not just the VAR wait, but then once they got back onto the pitch, the ball goes on the spot. And you do wonder whether even for a player of his stature, the nerves got to him. And because, I mean, there's another aspect, isn't it? That they were both pretty poor in terms of the performance. I was about to say I, that. I think like, you know, it would have been a bit of a pinch, wouldn't it really? I know you're saying it's a stonewaller, but it felt like a nil-nil. It acted like a nil-nil. And for me, we mentioned it yesterday in relation to the Holland game. But, you know, there's not much out there for the hipsters, is there? We're going to come on, to, I'm sure, to mention Denmark, Tunisia, but... There's not much out there for the cool kids who want a thrilling two-all draw between the kind of mid-ranking countries who are going to finish second in the group. The the lads really need to step up. We're getting some shocks from Saudi Arabia. We're getting the big boys win. We need we need some hipsters paradise, don't we, pretty soon? We need someone to go for it, basically. I mean, all this coy, you know, work our way into the tournament, haven't had any prep, forget that. These games need to be open. They need to be end-to-end. They need to be three-twos, four-twos here or there, whatever it needs to be. It's time to get some goals and some points on the board. It weren't good enough, frankly speaking, from either Poland or Mexico. I was deeply unimpressed with both of them in the game. Um, I know I'm skipping you ahead, know, Mexico... but, you, but that, that's kind of what Australia tried, though. You and they, it looked like they were maybe doing okay. They were they may have. They may have a done minute. A of that. Australia played France, mate. I know, but Mexico they, they played tried. Poland. They went they, and Poland they were bold. played Mexico. I, I don't think it matters who you're playing. Got three it games. does. You, 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 You've got three games. Yeah, but if you're really open against France, if you are really open against France, you obviously run a big risk of getting dismantled. I'm sorry. that Poland are not going to dismantle Mexico if they go for it a little bit and vice versa. It's just that there's, there's not a big enough gap in quality between them. But yeah, they can right. lose games, can't they? And like that's that's essentially the point, isn't it? That, that Mexico and Poland probably both went into that expecting Argentina to have beaten Saudi Arabia. And then when they didn't, they, it, it, they're like, oh God, we, re- we can't afford to lose this. And so that becomes the overriding factor in an opening game when you're not, when you as, as that team in that group, you know, everyone will have done their predictors beforehand on the Times website, I'm sure. We've gone Argentina top, Saudi Arabia bottom, and you'll have gone, mm, God, Mexico, Poland, Mexico, Poland, which one's it going to be? And those teams will have probably thought that as well. They'll have thought Argentina are going to be top and Saudi Arabia will be bottom. We're, we're battling for second. So when you play each other, surely I'm I'm playing devil's advocate here because I, I wanted it to be a thrilling game that ended four three, as much as you guys. But it, that's that's surely got to be part of it, hasn't it? I don't think they want it to be that. the the team the team the teams that win or go go far, we, we'll see it time and again. Are the ones that don't concede goals. So if they if they'd nicked a one 0 they would have been buzzing. So that much much rather that I mean we would rather see a four three win, but they would rather the the boring one 0 and that's the truth of the matter. So that's why we see more teams doing this than not. That's why we need more teams like Saudi Arabia. Okay. <laughs> so if those two sides watch that match, if those two sides watch that match, yeah, I, I thought I'd be saying this obviously after Saudi Arabia played Argentina. We need more teams at the World Cup like Saudi Arabia. Okay. Condense the pitch. Don't give them any space. Take shots. Oh my word. I was pulling my hair out the other night watching Wales in the stadium. God, pull, just pull the trigger. Shoot. You know, goals win games. Anyway, anyway, a goal could have come in this game. It never did. There weren't many chances. The penalty was a glaring one. 
it didn't go Poland's way. But I think you're both right in a way. The point it could be vitally important come the end of the group. Uh, Argentina currently bottom, Saudi Arabia top. Who would have thought that? We'll see what happens. A huge South American derby. Central America versus South America, or is it South American derby? Between Argentina and Mexico. My, my geography is clearly not good enough. But that will be on Saturday night, and that will be a huge game for both of those nations. Let's talk about Group D next, then France. Coming from behind, they beat Australia 4-1. Olivier Giroud made it to 51 goals for his country, of course, the defending champions as well. He is now level with the great Thierry Henry, which kind of left me scratching my head, but there you go. Uh, 36 years old, he's been around long enough. Chipping away at the goals, and he's got 51, and he will, of course, I think, break that record during this competition. As you mentioned, Gregor, Australia did make a good start. They were high energy, aggressive, much like we've seen from so many of the teams. I guess the underdog teams um, at the start of their games, at least so far in this tournament, trying to catch some of the big nations cold. And they did. They scored through Goodwin. Rabiot and Giroud turned it around before halftime. Goals in the second. Another for Giroud, of course. And Kylian Mbappe could have had a couple on the night at least. France composed. I've got to say they were very, very composed. Even at one down, Giroud was evergreen. The front four looked quality. Griezmann, Dembele adding a touch of class to the the two Mbappe and Giroud that I've already mentioned as well. And it was, I think, if the the England 6-2 win over Iran was a bit of a message and a bit of a marker, I think this was equally as big a marker to, to send a message to the rest of the tournament that France are here and they're here and they mean business despite all of the injuries in the camp. Tom, what did you make of that win? Yeah, I think you've touched on some interesting points. For me, it was both the composure that you mentioned, but also the kind of star quality as well. There was both in the game overall, it felt like a game in which the side with all the quality just has to go up a gear and it can do it very quickly. And they did that in little microcosms as well throughout the match, both for the goals that they scored, but also other chances that they created. One minute they'd be passing it around and you think, okay, Australia have got this. They've got fairly well set up in terms of their positioning across the pitch. And then bang, it would be like a couple of players would just go up a gear, make a few passes. They'd get the ball out wide and they'd get crosses into the box, either pullbacks or crosses in the air, and they'd have three or four attacking the ball. So it's a simple game when you've got quality players and you can move it quickly. I think that was the most ominous thing because, as you say, Hugh, it was composed in the overall sense. It was, don't worry, we've got this. Even when they were behind, they looked like they were in pretty good shape. And at international level, we've seen all teams, England, talk about Argentina, and we France have been guilty of it as well at international level in big tournaments of not having that composure. So the fact that they had that probably stems from the fact that they are obviously the the holders, the World Cup holders uh, from last time. They've still got the same manager in Didier Deschamps, which probably helps. And the nucleus of that team is still there. I know you're talking about Olivier Giroud, famously declared a championship-level player by Gregor Robertson at one point. Just a donkey. We're, uh, a donkey even, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I was trying to be kind after digging you out for your thing about small teams <laughs> earlier in the episode. I didn't want to go two, two studs up second time round. But yes, you did call him a donkey. Um, that, man, <laughs> that man with 50 international goals. Um, but, you know, that, that it, he, he is symbolic of that kind of consistency throughout the team. In a similar-ish way, dare I say it, to England and Gareth Southgate, where you have players within that French setup. Antoine Griezmann, for example, has had a difficult time at club level. Moves, transfers that haven't gone right. 
but yet he's in there and he looks quite confident and looks like he's playing well. Usman Dembele as well on the on the wing. I know he's been improved for Barcelona of late, but again, is another player that's not necessarily shone at club level how he might have done. And for France, they seem a well well organized and well well healed unit. And Rabiot, I thought in midfield was excellent. Obviously, they're missing Pogba. I thought he was brilliant. Um, scored a goal and created one as well. So I think I think you're right, Hugh. I, I would go further than your assessment that it's on the same level. I'd say it's more than England beating Iran. This was the most ominous performance so far, I think, of the World Cup. Dembele and, and Mbappe are the key. Keys. <laughs> because if they are really on it and, you know, they've got their, their, uh, their heels ready to burn, it's hard to deal with. And if they stay wide... It makes it creates space space for Griezmann for Rabiot to run into and for and it's going to create chances for Giroud. So they they're going to be the keys for for France and and you saw that and you know, I, I, just purely again from a defender's point of view, I had to kind of think fair play to Nathaniel Atkinson, the Australia right back who kind of just stuck with it. He was playing against Mbappe and sometimes he would slow down and then just he was off in a flash and he, he was chasing shadows and the other moments he got he stuck his foot in and he won the odd tackle and he thought fair play to you because that was a torturous that must have been a torturous torturous experience for him but he stuck at it Australia I think they deserve some some credit they they, they had a go they had a go and, and even when it was 2-1 for a long period yes they rode their luck and France had more and more chances I think they had 23 attempts and all they still stuck at it they had a header just before half time hit the wrong side of the post yeah, I, I don't think you can completely write them off against the other other two nations in the group. So maybe I would say that considering there's a massive Scottish contingent within that squad. That squad. So I hope, they, hope to see them do well. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, should we just say that you're an Australia fan for the rest of the tournament then? Maybe, maybe. Okay, all right, okay. No, listen, I, I listen. We, you spoke a, bit, a little bit about Australia's approach earlier, Tom, and I wanted to go back to that or it may have been you Gregor that said they were open exposed not really the the game plan that you need but I kind of respect the endeavour I just think they you know playing out from the back conceding the second goal allowing France to build in confidence that was silly Matt Ryan's just got to put his foot through it put it in rosette if you want to and I think there was a part of the, a part of me that wanted them to just mix the game up between trying to play and being on the front foot and at times, you know, having good quality possession, but also understanding that, you know, a bit like you were talking about the Mexico and Poland game being really tight, nicking a one nil, you know, there you can also do that as well. And I just wanted, you know, it could have been a little bit, a little bit pulled back on it a little bit. And I think that would have helped them a lot, but um, I still, I, you know, I'd rather see a side try that and uh, go out in a blaze of glory than a turgid nil-nil. There's yeah, no I mean, question there. No, no, they, well, they they got bodies forward, which, you know, Poland didn't. <laughs> they they got they got players up in support of Duke and Jackson Irvin had a really good game, I thought. He, somebody's played for a few clubs in Scotland. Did He was quite impressive at Hull City as well in the championship. I think he's playing in Bundesliga now. Good, he's a good player, kind of box to box, full of energy. But as I say, they committed men forward, and yeah, sometimes it left them open. Sometimes they were going to be left open anyway, because as I say, they were playing against two wingers that that just had the better of their man every time they wanted to go past them, and often they had to be kind of retreating to to get on the end of the cutbacks that Mbappe was putting into the box, and there was a lot of them, and they often cut them out, and then they tried to go forward. So I, look, I I think fair play to them. We we could sit here and say they could have, you know. 
they could have maybe been a bit more conservative in their approach, but they had a go. And uh, and I think they, they'll take some confidence, actually, from the display. Mbappe looked on it. I think that was the most ominous sign, actually. He could really, uh, on the basis of this performance, be the player of the tournament. Um, he, he looked irresistible at times. Yeah, didn't control the ball or didn't finish in exactly the way that he wanted to. Maybe took on too many shots in the end. But one-on-one, the Australian fullback had a torrid, torrid time against him. He's just so good. He's so quick with his feet. He's so sharp. Confidence level seems high. I mean, all of the celebrations for all of the goals suggested that uh, that French arrogance is going to be there throughout the tournament, I've got to say. And yeah, I think it was, um, as you mentioned, Tom, maybe a big, bigger signal than than what England showed against Iran in terms of what might come throughout the rest of the tournament. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Elsewhere in the group, we've got to talk about, well, Christian Eriksen's revival really coming full circle. He achieved the dream of playing at the World Cup again after that cardiac arrest. I mean, it was an emotional day for Christian Eriksen, you've got to say. It must have been for him and his family, of course. There were some of the human rights issues playing out in front of us as well. We we witnessed for the first time at the World Cup those um, stripped-down kits, if you like, um, training top that was just plain black for Denmark. They didn't have their badge or the Hummel brand on the kits. They don't want to be involved. I was at this game. There were, honestly, maybe 200 Danish fans Reading reports, all of those fans, pretty much anyone that travels to Qatar from Denmark, getting a lot of criticism from back home. You know, this is a World Cup that they don't believe should be taking place. They don't really want any part of it. They want to protest Simon Kier. The Denmark captain speaking after the game was talking about the the one love armbands, the sense of censorship, if you like, taking aim directly at FIFA in his criticisms. But in terms of the match itself, Denmark, never really showed up. Maybe that's a little bit harsh, but they weren't themselves. So many people have tipped them to be dark horses. Um, they didn't really have the quality of possession that we're used to. Didn't really have the level of aggression that we would expect from them. No real quality in the final third. Either they need a solution to the striking department, that's for sure. Kasper Dolberg started up front. And I mean... He looked, I guess, less of a false nine and more of a fake footballer, to be honest, at times. <laughs> I mean, it just, it just, it, I honestly was tearing my hair out. I just screaming at the pitch. What do you want to be, Casper? What do you want to be? Decide, because, you know, he, he looks like he wants to play number 10. Doesn't look like he really cares much about getting in the box or scoring a goal. The number one priority seems to be looking good, as far as I could tell from the stands anyway. And uh, I was... Highly disappointed with him and he should have got hooked at half time as far as I was concerned. 
But I don't want to take away because I know that, of course, we expect a lot from Denmark, from Tunisia's performance as well. The stadium was packed full of Tunisian fans. It was like a home game. The atmosphere was incredible. I said on my broadcast, you know, this is what it should have felt like for the host nation's opening game. The noise was absolutely incredible. It was an ocean of red throughout the Education City Stadium. I really enjoyed the match from that um, angle, I think, because you've been waiting to hear that sound, you know, the gasps, you know, that just reverberate around the entire stadium, the screams, whatever it might be. Um, It had a real footballing atmosphere, this game. Um, And I enjoyed that angle. Of course, I did as a football fan. Didn't enjoy the game as much. Um, You know, it seemed to be categorised by Tunisia making tackles, half chance here or there, not really having the final ball and Denmark pretty much the same, actually. Um, So I was, you know, in that respect, disappointed in how the game played out as a whole because I think that atmosphere was probably the headline. Gregor, did you enjoy this game? No. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, (laughs) it it was pretty dire. I think this was, this was also because it disappointed me. I want, you know, I was expecting a bit more from Denmark, as you said. I thought they were really poor. They kind of grew a bit towards the end, but as you say, it was they relied on Kasper Michael to make a couple of good saves. One from Jubali's little dink that was a brilliant save. He kind of swung his arm at it, and I was really, really disappointed with him. I think the best thing about their performance, as you say, was kind of some of the things around it. Casper Human was was spoke really well afterwards as well about the kind of about the armband situation and again showing sort of emotional intelligence about it all and saying that I really hope to see some younger, more progressive people in the governing body soon that, so that we're not being forced to have these conversations and try and, and he's also really strong about taking the any blame associated with the players that some people seem to be trying to do away from the players, which I wholeheartedly agree with him with about the armband. So yeah, they are kind of musings in the post-match uh, press conference were, were more entertaining than anything they did on the pitch. Probably the most entertaining part of the match was when Ayusa Laiduni, I think, I hope I'm saying that right, made that tackle on Christian Eriksen and then celebrated for about 10 seconds, like punching <laughs> his chest and <laughs> just for like a kind of fairly humdrum throw-in uh, in his own half, I think. That was an extravagant celebration for for a tackle, but I was I was I was here for it. I loved it. I I wasn't quite as despondent as Gregor. I've got to say, and I think he's forgetting some of his football league roots when it comes to this game. There was lots, you know. You touched on it there with Tunisia and some of the celebrations for their tackles and their clearances and their corners. Hugh, you mentioned the atmosphere in the ground, and we got that on TV as well. We got the sense of the yeah. occasion for the Tunisian fans, and I think. For all Mexico, Poland had that kind of, um, as I've been using that term, hipster kind of uh, game potential for two teams that are about the same level. You know, Tunisia are below Denmark in terms of quality. And whilst Denmark were really poor, and watching that, I was feared for our good friend, Alison Rudd, who was in a terrible mood on the podcast yesterday. She wasn't impressed by England. She wasn't (laughs) impressed by Wales. And I was really hoping that Denmark were going to cheer her up. And so I'm very worried about how she's going to be when she come, the next comes on the show. But I would say, from my point of view as being a fan of football in the lower leagues of England, I was pleased for Tunisia in terms of their battling performance because we talked about giving Australia credit for having a go. And I think they did that in a, to an extent in some periods of the game. And they did that certainly in their defending. You know, it wasn't coy. There was no, it was pretty full, full frontal full attacking defending, if you like. Lots of pressing, lots of intensity. And I think that is to be applauded, really. 
you know the the performance on the pitch certainly married up with the kind of intensity of the atmosphere in the stands that you got whether you were in the stadium like you Hugh, or on the te- or watching on the telly but that's an important point actually because it was the same with the Saudi Argentina game you kind of we've watched the, on the opening day and there was a lot of empty seats and you kind of worried about whether this was going to be a bit of a withering tournament to be honest I was and the, what you've seen today is a kind of certainly the the atmosphere and the and the buoyancy within the stadiums that you you want to see at all the games. Clearly, we're talking about one nation, Saudi Arabia, are almost locals, but it's just good to see that. It's good to see there was a bit of lift off today with a, a shock result. One of the main contenders showing up and scoring four goals and some battling displays and sort of atmosphere in the stands. That's it was it was still a good day for the World Cup. Actually, I think absolutely. Yeah, and I think on that subject of atmosphere, Hugh, obviously you were busy uh, with the Wales game and you mentioned being in the stadium for the Tunisia game. I think the Wales fans as well deserve huge credit for the atmosphere they created. What Hugh, what was it like in the stadium for that game and what, what was your take? Because obviously you were the man missing from our coverage yesterday in terms of what you felt about Wales' performances and from uh, getting that point. Firstly, the Red Wall were fantastic as always. It was great, I think, to see so many of them. We obviously went out to the Euros in Azerbaijan, where, of course, travel due to lockdown wasn't exactly what it wanted to be. It was a long, long way to go for for many of those fans as well. Those that were able to make this journey um, certainly made themselves heard in the stadium. I've got to say, doesn't matter what the sporting event is, Wales fans absolutely pitch perfect. I mean, do you learn how to sing in school? Is that like mandatory throughout? I don't get it (laughs) because they sound absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's like a choir at one end of the pitch. It's absolutely incredible. Um, I think that, of course, helped the Wales players, always helps the Wales players. Um, They sang the national anthem a couple of times, which is incredibly stirring, by the way. You know, if there's an injury, a lull in the game where the stadium kind of goes quiet, they sing the national anthem, which is honestly so atmospheric. You know, it's it's a bit like hearing a, a hymn, you know, from the back of a church, you know, and again, just that perfect sound echoing across the pitch and at one point Aaron Ramsey just stopped and and just applauded the fans after they, they'd sung that and I think that gave the Wales players a lift to, to get back into the game um, the first half was atrocious actually and maybe the fans <laughs> deserve even more credit because it was atrocious from Wales uh, in particular because they just never got going you can talk about Rob Page's decision to leave Kiefer Moore on the bench which I think all of us were quite stunned by but actually, it was his decision not to change it sooner that was more shocking because we've criticised, you know, Gareth Southgate in the past for the big games. And when you feel like the opposition is about to score and it was like, do something, do something now. Like all of us were screaming for him to make a formational change. You know, Dan James was up there with Gareth Bale, both of them pretty much absent in that first half. And you just wanted him to even, if he didn't want to change personnel, just change the tactics slightly to get them to halftime and maybe reassess things. And he was just a bit slow to do that. But yeah, I think the atmosphere in the game was was very good. Um, the Americans make lots of noise. There were quite a few of them, the Stars and Stripes. The Uncle Sam costumes were there as well. They played their part too. They're obviously not as great as the Wales fans, who I've got to give, again, much more credit to. But um, But in the end, I think... Wales will be highly disappointed because they could have beaten the United States I think on the basis of their second half performance I think they really could have had they started the game positively won that game my only question mark actually going forward is about Gareth Bale and Aaron Ramsey in particular the prospect of bringing Joe Allen back in who would be great on the ball but hasn't played since 
the 17th of September for Swansea City is that I think they're going to have too many players on the pitch who aren't at it physically. You know, there's quality there for Aaron Ramsey. There's quality clearly as Gareth Bell showed. But they can't run as quick as they used to or for as long as they used to. Um, and I think this World Cup with a lack of preparation time as well, and you, you, you see like the United States, young, a tenacious team get about the park. You know, that was part of their dominance in the first half as well because Aaron Ramsey took a while to get into the game and Gareth Bale took quite a while to get into the game. And it was, you know, for him, it's kind of like, well, we need a goal now. I'm going to have to start running a little bit more and I'm going to have to do a little bit more. And he tries to conserve his energy for later on in the games where he usually has an effect. But that's not going to be good enough. I don't think that's not going to be good enough. It's a weird one because you're screaming for you know, players that play in League One to come off the bench to make a difference because you think they you think they can just because of their energy. And it's a big question, I think, for Rob Page going forward. I know you asked me about the atmosphere and I've I've given you a full report on what I think about the Wales team at this point in time. But yeah, I'm really intrigued to see it. We'll talk about it later in the week, but what he does going forward because Kiefer Moore will start, but there needs to be maybe another couple of tweaks as well, I think. Anyway, like I say, we'll talk about Wales uh, a little bit later on in the week ahead of their next game against Iran, which they have to win. Of course they do uh, before they play England. We do want to talk about some of the big, I guess, other headlines. One involving a player at the World Cup in the shape of Cristiano Ronaldo, but also his club, Manchester United. Of course, Ronaldo uh, has been released. He is free to join another club, as reported in the time, even a Premier League club if he really wants to. United announcing they had come to a mutual agreement to rip up the contract of the 37-year-old, which is due to expire at the end of June. It's understood United haven't included a clause in the deal that would prevent him from joining another English club. It's also reported they haven't paid a huge amount of money to terminate that contract. A minimal fee, I think, is the phrase that's being used. It, of course, comes after Ronaldo gave that controversial interview to Piers Morgan on Talk TV, criticising the club and the manager, Eric Ten Hag, who he said he didn't respect. And this evening... Very strange evening to announce this, but maybe they thought the Cristiano Ronaldo news would would maybe hide this one a little bit. But Manchester United um, have begun the process, they say, to explore strategic alternatives to enhance the club's growth. Now, essentially, I think that means they're looking for investment. And I think we all know that in reality, if someone wants to invest so highly that they take 100% of the shares away from the Glazer family, then they might listen to the right offer as well. And the club is essentially up for sale. Um, at least that's how I read the situation. So two huge things coming out of Manchester United. We'll talk about it for a few minutes. It's not strictly World Cup. But um, yeah, I guess your reaction to both of those pieces of news, Tom. I think the Ronaldo one, my reaction, whilst from a journalistic point of view during a busy World Cup, my initial reaction was, oh, for God's sake, lads, can we not just leave this to another day? Can we not? <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were all on pause. Honestly, for goodness sake. The hilarious thing as well, just very quickly, uh, whilst we were talking about things that myself and James Restler discussed on the editing desk, is we talked this morning about the fact that the, you know some of these games were small team versus middling team. And I said to James, the famous, now famous words, maybe there won't be that many stories today. And here we are, sat recording the podcast with a Saudi Arabia shock shock win, a huge win for France, and absolutely loads and loads of news in the Premier League. Having said that, I think I'm actually quite 
almost impressed, I would say, by Manchester United's handling of the Ronaldo situation in terms of getting it done and finished. There could have been the potential for it to drag on uh, during the World Cup and as we reach the latter stages for it to still be an issue. The fact that it's been tied off, if you like, and finished. And as you say, Hugh, all reports from uh, Paul Hurst in the Times at the minute suggesting that there's not been a massive payoff in terms of getting rid of Ronaldo and ripping up that contract because United believed that he was in breach of that contract, not only with the interview with Piers Morgan, but also um, with his refusal to come on the pitch um, when he obviously famously now walked off um, whilst United was still playing against Tottenham. So in that sense, I, from an analytical sense and not from a tired journalist sense, I'm impressed by United. When it comes to the sale and the Glazers, I, it's it's tough to know whether it's a kind of testing the waters type thing. I, I'm in, ever quite cynical with these kind of things and find myself thinking, well, until it actually happens, I'll be massively sceptical because it, it will take such a huge amount of money to buy Manchester United from the Glazers that, yes, there are, as we've seen with Newcastle, p- people in the world who have the, the, the funds required to invest in a club like Manchester United. But it does seem that perhaps my uh, scepticism is a bit misplaced because you see, you start to read into it and you see that the Glazers have hired the Rain Group as financial advisors who oversaw the Chelsea sale. I think as well, that's probably a factor that United uh, owners, the Glazers, probably looked at the fact that Chelsea were sold and changed ownership fairly easily in the scheme of things in terms of um, that process and thought that money could be made, that a sale could be made. They probably also looked at the incoming investment of Newcastle and thinking we're going to face increasing challenges here. Maybe it's time to get out now. So there's a slight bit of scepticism from me on the sale point of view, but very impressed with them getting the the Ronaldo situation resolved. I knew there would be a nonsensical argument congratulating Manchester United on their handling of this situation, and it came from Tom Clark. I didn't say the whole situation. I just... (laughs) Absolutely absurd. I just said. I just said. I just said the fact they got it finished. I'm not talking about what came before. What do you mean? They created the whole thing. From I mean, how can you congratulate them? Listen, listen. You don't need me to remind you. We can sit here all night if you want, and I'll wait for John Jackson to get the clips where you said they were going to win the league because they'd sign Ronaldo, and I said it was a disastrous signing. (laughs) We we can go back to that if you want. We can go back to that if you want, but. I said it was a terrible move in the first place and I've said that that it wasn't the right decision from the club in the first place. I've been critical of them. All I'm saying is that from this point of view, this tiny, tiny chapter in a big long running saga, I'm impressed that they managed to just nip it in the bud. Before we go like, you know, two foot into that, and I'm sure there'll be lots of time to talk about that, what is interesting now is that Manchester United are up for sale, Liverpool are at the very least seeking investment, but possibly up for sale. And PSG, who are owned by the Qatari Investment Fund, are looking for investment as well. So I, I I don't know what that means, but I think it probably means something, possibly about... Probably um, the fact they didn't get the Super League they wanted was probably a well, Liverpool and Manchester yeah, United Maybe factor, they feel it? that we're, we're approaching a, a ceiling, maybe. But then there's still people going to be willing to come in and invest lots of money and they still think there's markets to be exploited around the world. So you know there are lots of people saying that we're not We've not hit a ceiling, we're nowhere near a ceiling, there's still streaming opportunities, things like that. But it is interesting that three of the biggest clubs in Europe are seeking investment right now in the same summer. Um, I, I've got very lot to say about Ronaldo. I mean, he's not 
But I agree, it shouldn't have come to this. He should have probably been allowed to leave in the summer. No, he should have been allowed to leave in the summer. The idea of having a, a happy Ronaldo being anything other than, you know, first name on the team sheet was ludicrous. And what he did was, I found pretty distasteful, really. The interview was a joke, but it, it worked for him. It worked in the end. He, I don't think he's bothered about whether he's missed out on £15 million as a payoff. He's going on a free. And the idea of Manchester United letting him leave on a free in any other way was probably unlikely too. They'll say, no, we'll keep you until the end of the season. We'll use you in in the Europa League. Uh, and he didn't want to do that. So ultimately, it was a means to an end for him and it succeeded. Come on then, Hugh. Sad to see a legend leave like this. You've got. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to sum up. Go on. Yes, sad to see a legend of Real Madrid leave Manchester United like this. (laughs) Oh, there Um, he is. (laughs) No, listen, I mean, we've been over it before. Um, As soon as he did the interview, and we all knew why, it was going to be the final nail in the coffin and he was going to leave. The only thing I can praise Manchester United for is that they managed to get to this point, but I think there would have been a lot of compromise on Ronaldo's side to say, I'm happy to walk away and not take any money with me, pretty much. Um, And I think that would have helped the situation entirely. But again, I don't think we would have ever been here had they let him leave in the summer like Gregor suggested, which, you know, we spoke back then. That should have happened. In terms of uh, the sale of Manchester United, I've just been speaking to a mate um, who, for me, I'm worried as a Manchester United fan about who owns the club because of the nation states, if you like, who've come to own football clubs. That would be the last thing that I would want to see at the club that I support. And so I'm slightly worried in that regard. I imagine it will be... American investment groups. And again, I think the number of American investment groups coming into European football suggests that they believe there is a product there that they can build. What that product is, especially if we look at the American sports market, um, could be something very different to what we've seen before. And again, that fills me with worries. So until we know who the future owners of Manchester United are, it's hard for me to really feel positive about this. We'll see exactly how it goes. So that's just it. Okay, Uh, not really a World Cup story, but a big story nonetheless. I think we had to cover that on the game. You can read more from um, that story from Paul Hurst, who should have been with us on the podcast. But obviously, having been at Argentina, Saudi Arabia and covering these stories with Manchester United as our Manchester correspondent, he is pretty busy at this point in time. But I'm sure he will join us uh, throughout the uh, World Cup from here in Doha. Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson, thank you for joining me. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that notification button. We will have new episodes for you each and every morning. Loads of great writing on the Times app, so download that or go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to subscribe to that as well. Okay, we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.